As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome. The Athletic Football Show. Today's Thursday, June 23rd. I'm Robert Mays. Great show for you guys today. Nate Tice is going to be joining us a little bit later. It's June. It's late June. We're doing the Hall of Very Good today. We're going to talk about some players that we think are worth celebrating but do not rise to Hall of Fame caliber, even though our next guest that I'm going to introduce cheated and put on some players that are way too good, and we will discuss that when it's time for it. Before we get into that, though, I'm thrilled to welcome my good friend, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay, how are you doing? I'm great. I survived three hours of watching uh, Roger Goodell testify before Congress today. So I'm ready. I'm, let's go. That's why we're starting off this way, because there is some news that we absolutely have to talk about that's happened over the last couple of days in the NFL. And that starts with, let's call them the eventful House Oversight Committee hearings that happened in regard to the Washington football team earlier today. You watched all of this in part, so I didn't have to, which I sincerely appreciate. I got to digest all of the information a little bit later. Walk me through what you feel are the most important kind of points and tenets of what went on this morning with the latest in that investigation. Or I guess, I guess not investigation, the latest in that process. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple important things. There wasn't a ton of new stuff necessarily. I mean, there wasn't a ton of like breaking news nuggets that came out of there because in large part, Roger Goodell is really good at his job and, you know, not giving, you know, newsy answers to a lot of the questions that uh, the various representatives had. A couple notable things. One, Dan Snyder did not attend. It was, uh, he was invited. This was voluntary. Um, He apparently is in France. Um, his luxury yacht, which you can track those things, is docked, I guess, near Cannes. So um, he is uh, in France instead of coming to the, this committee hearing. But the to me, the biggest like newsy nugget that came out of this hearing is that he's going to be subpoenaed to come and testify before Congress, which that is not voluntary. So they plan to hold um, another hearing, which will be now more deposition style because he will be compelled to testify. And so we'll see how he and his legal team try to wiggle out of that. Because I don't think any everything we know about Dan Snyder, that he's not all of a sudden going to like see a subpoena and be like, okay, you're right. I'll go. I'll tell you everything. I mean, you know, 
He's been very cooperative so far. So. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, if nothing, he has been um, defiant uh, about everything over the last couple of years throughout this process. Um, and then the other, I guess, kind of news that came out of this was right before the hearing started when the House Oversight Committee released a 29-page report, kind of their own investigative findings. Um, and included in that was a, um, a dossier that Snyder and his, like, Team. I mean, I don't mean the commanders, but like Snyder and his lawyers and those people mm-hmm. kind of put together over the last, you know, couple of years, probably right after the wa- initial Washington Post story came out in 2020 to basically conduct like a shadow investigation. Um, so it included the journalists at the Washington Post who were reporting on that story, background on them, um, details about the former employees, a lot of the women who came forward publicly. Uh, so it just was like a way to kind of do their own like witness intimidation and trying to discredit the people who were involved in this process and also doing a lot of digging to try to figure out who the sources for that story was. So it was like looking at, you know, Will Hobson and Liz Clark, the reporters from the Washington Post, going through their follows and their likes to say, okay, well, they follow, you know, these women who used to work for the team and then follow, you know, Scott McLuhan and McLuhan's wife. And like, these are all people who could have been leaking information. So those were kind of the newsy, newsy nuggets to me out of there. You know, Roger Goodell testified for almost three hours. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Robert. Oh, I was going to say that this comes on the heels, I think, yesterday of the Washington Post story about the 2009 revelation that Snyder was accused of sexual harassment and assault. And there was a $1.6 million settlement as part of that process. So it's been a an eventful 48 hours as it comes to new revelations when it comes to this entire thing. So the Post has previously reported that there was a 2009 allegation. Um, They were able to get more details about exactly what that entailed because so much of it has been sealed and Snyder and his team have gone to great lengths to try to uh, keep any of that from being public, including suing during the Wilkinson investigation to try to keep Wilkinson from talking to that woman because of the NDAs and all the stuff that was filed. Um, they did end up talking to her, Wilkinson and her team did for this investigation. Um, but it was notable that Roger Goodell, under oath in front of Congress today, said that he did not recall being made aware of that allegation in 2009, um, or that the team was investigate conducting its own investigation, both of those things would be violations of the personal conduct policy that was in place at the time in 2008. So that's another potentially newsy nugget. I would say there's not the reporting that I've done after and kind of the calls I've been making around this. I don't think this is going to expand the scope of the current investigation that that is going on in the NFL. Um, and I was told actually that that dossier that that Congress put out today as part of that oversight committee report actually came from the NFL. The NFL that was part of, you know, the 400,000 pages of documents that the NFL turned over <laughs> to Congress. So, um, that there wasn't a lot, I think, that caught the league by surprise in that, uh, in that investigation, even though it was new information to the rest of us. And as part of the league's response today, Goodell continued to double down and continued to say that they are not going to release any sort of written report with the Wilkinson investigation in the interest of privacy of the women who've come forward, which doesn't really seem to hold water as an argument. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing I think that we've been saying really since last October when the, this drumbeat for releasing the report really, really grew very strong. It was that, you know, the league and now, and Goodell is the face of all of this has been saying that they did not what they didn't even request a written report. So 
they don't actually have, you know, like a extensive 200 page document like they did for Deflategate, for example. They didn't request it and then obviously had nothing to release out of trying to preserve the privacy and the confidentiality. I've said all the way back to then that it was pretty clear to me who the league and Goodell was protecting. And it was not the women who worked for the Washington organization. It was Dan Snyder um, and other team owners, um, but especially in this case, Dan Snyder. And, you know, Goodell is not backing down on that, repeatedly doubled down that they're not going to release that. It was definitely a significant part of the questioning from the Democratic members of the uh, the House Oversight Committee. Um, the flip side of that was that the Republican members of the Oversight Committee didn't really have any interest in asking any questions um, that had to do with the Washington investigation. There was a whole host of other stuff about inflation and border control and uh, tampon crisis and Dave Portnoy. And it was it was kind of a mess. I would not advise going and watching all two and a half hours, but uh, it gave you a, a, a lot of insight into the like the sausage making in Washington. And it was, it was really, really ugly. So the the thing that I'll, I will finish on is anything that has come up over the last 48 hours, does it bring us any closer to a world where the league and its owners decide that Dan Snyder should not be the owner of the Washington football team? Because that's my thought is after all of this is what does this ultimately mean? Where does this yeah. ultimately going to bring us? Yeah. I mean, I, kind of come back where I kind of always have here and that I, and I tweeted this earlier today, the cynical side of me is that thinks that when the rest of the owners, and it is the owners, not Roger Goodell, who has the power to remove another owner. It has never happened. Roger Goodell could certainly move that process along if he wanted to. He was asked directly if he would remove Dan Snyder from ownership today, and he said that he did not have the authority to do so. He could bring it up to vote if he wanted to. He could put it on the agenda at one of these meetings and force the other owners to, you know, at least go on the record or make a vote of one way or another. Uh, but he alone does not have the power to remove an owner uh, or you know force force anybody to sell the cynical side of me says that as long as the main focus of this is on workplace conduct and the treatment of women in the workplace that the fellow owners are not going to care the thing that will move this toward dan snyder's removal is if there are if there's money involved if sponsors are leaving the league in droves as long as dan snyder is still there if there's any sort of merit to the allegations that the or that the Washington team might have been, uh, you know, cooking their books. Those sorts of things would motivate other owners to action. I don't think the treatment of women in the workplace is something that the rest of the owners care about enough to actually do anything. All right, let's move on here. The other news that came down earlier this week: Deshaun Watson has reportedly settled twenty of the twenty-four lawsuits against him. What does this mean? for the process currently going on with Deshaun Watson and league discipline and where that currently stands? Sure. So um, yeah, Tony Busby, who's the attorney who's represented um, nearly all of the the women who have accused Deshaun Watson of sexual misconduct, uh, did announce that it was 20 of the 24 active cases have been settled. Um, there were also about 20 cases. So we're not entirely sure if it was the exact same 20, but there were 20 that were ready to be settled last fall. Um, mm-hmm. But that didn't happen because it was not going to be all of them. Um, but so 20 have been settled, four remain active, at least one of those, the first suit 
um, that was brought by Ashley Solis, who spoke to HBO. She has spoken to the New York Times on the record. Um, that one has not been settled. And that at this point, it appears that that one is going to proceed. They want to take it to trial. So his legal issues are not all the way behind him, but settling 20 out of the 24 at this point, you know, it takes a lot of kind of like the legal logistics off of the plate, you know, off of his plate. He's not going to face, you know, dozens of trials next year at some point after the season's beginning in 2023. He's not going to be having to fly back and forth to Houston for all these depositions, that sort of stuff. I don't think it changes anything in regards to the NFL's investigation and their potential discipline. Um, the NFL said as much this week, right? Brian McCarthy yeah, came absolutely. out explicitly and said this does not affect whatever the disciplinary yeah, process I mean, is going so to look like. So one of the hallmarks of the NFL's personal conduct policy when it was rewritten in 2014 was to separate their process from law enforcement and the legal system. Um, if you remember what led to them rewriting this policy, it was the Ray Rice situation where mm. they let the legal system play out. Ray Rice went into a you know kind of like a deferred program where he got to go take some like anger management classes and stuff. There was no actual punishment of the legal system. And they said, look, he wasn't, there was no jail time. The chargers were dismissed because of this pretrial diversion, all of this stuff. And then you see the video and you realize like that sometimes judicial outcomes don't match what actually had happened. And if you rely on the legal, the legal system to adjudicate these cases when you supposedly hold your players to a higher standard, this is when you fall short of actually um, holding players to, you know, holding players accountable for their off-field actions. Um, so that that's what always led me to believe that really whatever happened here wasn't going to impact that investigation one way or another. Um, I am curious how they might look at settling as if that's like, is that some sort of admission of guilt? Um he, we have not seen any of that out of Deshaun Watson at any point where he's admitted that he did anything wrong or understands why all of these women brought these allegations forward in the first place, why they may have been hurt. We've talked about this at length uh, on the on this podcast, so um, we have multiple episodes that we've that we've gotten into all of this. But um, ultimately, from my understanding right now, is that they're kind of in negotiations about like what potential discipline. Uh, might look like. The NFLPA, I'm told, is involved, including their lawyer, Jeffrey Kessler, who is uh, pretty well known uh, in pro sports circles as being a uh, guy who doesn't like to, um, doesn't really like to settle. Uh, isn't He's not coming in there to negotiate a, a, a long suspension. So I think that has extended the timeline a little bit here. You know, I've heard and that since we last talked, the Washington Post report that came out and has been since corroborated by a bunch of different people about a significant yeah. suspension yes. being recommended for the league. We have not discussed that yet. Because yeah, the last time it, you and I talked, I think you and I both came down on the common sense side of thinking, feels like a year is where the league would want to go with this because they understand whatever the optics of it are and how this is going to come off. And since we had that discussion, it's been reported multiple places that the league does want something in the realm of a year-long suspension. Yeah. And I, so I was on vacation, uh, trying to like mute all references to Deshaun Watson while I was uh, in Hawaii with my family, but I did read the Washington Post story. And since coming back, I've been making a lot of calls and I've heard the exact same thing, right? That there are people within the league office that are, um, very much pushing for a significant suspension. Um, you know, something much longer than what we've seen for, you know, the baseline for. This type of violation is usually six games. I would expect now that the NFL is pushing for something significantly higher than that. Um, but the one place where I get a little, uh, I get a little wary of just trying to predict what's going to happen is that 
we haven't, it's just unprecedented. You know, this is a new process. Um, Sue L. Robinson, uh, a former federal judge, is going to be making the the decision here. Watson will be able to appeal. That appeal will go to Roger Goodell. There's negotiations going on behind the scenes. But so I, I feel a little just like wary of predicting about how it's going to go, other than I do expect it's going to be like, you know, a, a legitimate significant suspension and that we will get news of it certainly by before the start of training camp, if not sooner here within the next couple of weeks. I mean, to me, it screams classic Friday, a 4th of July weekend news dump. So yeah. clear your calendars for July 1st um, to, you know, to have some sort of reaction to that. That's like, you know, that was when they released the initial Wilkinson report uh, findings last year was 4th of July weekend. So, And I believe tuned. that there is some pre-trial discovery deadline. That's June 30th, correct? So um, now that's were, less important because yes. there's there, because the 24 cases is down to four. But even if it's four, there's still that date. Yeah. And then that also plays into the before training camp after that date on 4th of July, July weekend. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody kind of wants to have some sort of re- resolution, you know, an understanding of what's going to happen before we get too far into the season and, you know, into training camp and all of that stuff. Although I will say like, I don't really fall into this, this camp of like, Oh, the Browns deserve news. I mean, the Browns deserve every bit of like the mess that they're in right now. So we're not going to do the, I don't think anybody needs to do the Browns any favors to help give them clarity with their quarterback situation. All right. So that's all we have on that for right now. We will obviously revisit this when it's appropriate. When the suspension comes down, we'll be covering that as we need to. For now, though, we're going to take a quick break before we chat with Nate. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. It's time now to welcome my good friend, Nate Tice. Nate, how you doing, bud? Doing very well. This was fun uh, putting this little list together for our Hall of Very Good. Like compared to last year when I was just like, I think this is the parameters we're going off of. And this year I kind of have a little bit more feel for what we're going for. Well, apparently I don't have feel for what we're going to going for. You guys we, are going to get all We can talk through some case. of this That's because I thought that some of your arguments for why you included some of these guys was good. So here is the very loose, very not real set of circumstances and requirements that I have as Robert's I'm moving this. goalposts. <laughs> I, because there's no rules. There are no rules. So there are some guys who just, you look at it and like, too good. Too good, like, does not count for this. This is not the spirit of the exercise. A couple players that I will throw out as I was going through this that I'd considered that are now eligible that I was like, nah, too good. Vince Wilfork, too good. Like, and so my, that usually aligns with guys who have very quickly been Hall of Fame semifinalists in their first couple years of eligibility. So if you get to eligibility for the Hall of Fame and you're already on that list of 25 semifinalists in year one or two of eligibility, you can't be in the Hall very good. You are too good. 
So one of your guys, Nate, is on was on that list last year, but he's been retired for like 15 years. Mm-hmm. So that to me is is okay. That that's a sweet spot where it's like, all right, I can understand that. Ret- retrospective he- nominations, like yeah, right, the kind of 20 year later, the Edgar Martinez of the world. <laughs> the, yes, the goal here is not to find guys who are arguably Hall of Famers. That's what Canton Court is for. This is about guys who we do not think will reasonably ever be inducted into the Hall of Fame, but we still think are worth celebrating. So I want, were there a couple names that you were considering and didn't throw out, Lindsay? Because I have a few that I want to talk about just very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I guess I didn't have like a really strong list. So because I kind of looked at it as there are there were a couple guys I think that I was considering who will probably end up being on that list of 25 at some point. One of my guys is in his first year of eligibility. And we don't know who that list is going to be. I've seen the preliminary list um, of guys who are on the very preliminary list, but we have not yet voted on who the 25, the group, the first group of 25 is going to be. Um, I kind of looked at it as Guys who I just don't think will ultimately get in based on the career that they had. And that first list, I think, is kind of tricky because you can kind of get onto the very initial list. Like fans can submit anybody, you know, any selectors can kind of say, hey, let's put this guy up for consideration. So guys who maybe had a little bit more public profile, more recent, you know, guys who very recently retired, I think they sometimes get like a little artificially bumped up onto that initial list and then aren't going to make the subsequent cut downs and especially maybe in a couple of years we'll see them removed from that list like Chad Johnson is one of those Chad kind Johnson of guys. is exactly the person I was going to bring up Nate do you think Chad Johnson is too good for this no yeah no he's You don't very... think he's too good for this I think <sighs> I that's I maybe next year I put him in then Cause because my initial thought was ah, too good uh he made he was three time first or second team all pro See, that's, and I think, yeah, he's he's right at that cutoff. He, he's, he's right he, on the edge. Yeah, he didn't make so, an all and, decade team, which is like one. If I see all decade team, I throw a guy out. That's why I retconned Kevin Williams. I went from very good to Canton Court <laughs> in a one week <laughs> in one week's time last year because I was like I argued against it and for it in the two weeks time. So there was another guy who I had the exact same thought about, and it was Logan Mankins. Logan okay, Mankins yeah. is in Hall of Fame semifinals, but he's on the all decade team, so it's like ah, he might that's be hard. too good. So the Will Fork, I thought, automatically too good. Somebody who has not been a Hall of Fame semifinalist but feels too good. And depending on where we come down on this, he will be my first player next year. What do you think about John Abraham? Is John Abraham too mm-hmm. good? He made my list last year, and I, was, and I, I think I ended up with too good on him. Well, let me see. It is shocking to me that he has not been a Hall of Fame semifinalist. He's got 135 sacks. Yeah. He was consistently awesome. He didn't play on very good teams, That's... but I still feel like he is very much underappreciated. If we come down on a certain side, I, he'll be the first guy I mention next year. Man, yeah, I, I, you might tab him from next year. He's kind of he's right at that cutoff. He's kind of like the Ch- Chad Johnsons of the world, and even you know the Kevin Williams of the world, where you just like he has enough Pro Bowls, enough All Pros, and then but a hundred sacks is kind of like that's he's a big hundred thirty. Num- that's a big number to hit, and he has a hundred and thirty. Like that's kind of a yeah. I don't know. I don't know. He's a remember some dudes guy. Lindsay, you you have to argue for John Abraham in this room because John Abraham was fucking awesome. He was. John Abraham is it's not just a sacks total thing. Right. For also, by the way, if you get 130 sacks, it doesn't matter if they're cheap. Like yeah. they, you can't get 130 cheap sacks. You don't you luck need into to be that. really good to yeah. get hundred sacks. And if you go back through and you look at some of the PFF numbers, because we have them for starting in like 06 now. 
It's like 15 years ago. So a lot of the guys we grew up watching in yeah. adulthood, he's at the top of the list in terms of pressures like every single mm-hmm. year. He was fun to watch. Like, I just think we're very much overlooking how incredible John Abraham's career was. He was yeah. the Jets' last good pass rusher. Yes. He put a hex yeah. on the Jets. They can't have a good pass rusher anymore because John Abraham got, left. And the Falcons kind of too. <laughs> yeah. He was good with the Falcons. Yeah. He was I, – I thought he was an awesome, awesome player. So those are the four guys I didn't really I had. say he had 130 sacks, but I think I, um, I think I like had him last year. I might have Richard Seymour last year. That might have been the name. I, I was actually Richard having. Seymour is a tough yeah, cause, one. Yeah, because because Seymour had already been a finalist last yes. year. Like, yes, he was one of those guys who he, knew was getting in. He had been in the final room for discussion and just hadn't gotten in. Abraham has, hasn't quite made. I mean, sniffed it. Yeah, that leap. The one season he played full a full year with the Cardinals, he was thirty five years old and he had eleven and a half sacks. Yeah, kept producing. Just like this dude, just continuing to crush it just consistently automatic. every single year, no matter what team he was on. John Abraham was really, really good. Yeah, and yeah, I, I'd like love Will to Fork compare to him side by side with, um, you know, like last year the kind of the the young the youngish pass rush, you know, young but like newer nominee pass rushers. Like it was Jared Allen and Demarcus Ware. Like I want to get Abraham in that conversation. Like yeah. to me, Demarcus. I think Ware, he deserves to be was, in that yeah. conversation. I if Jared Allen, stunned. Demarcus Ware, in it. He's in it. Like yeah, I mean, I was stunned that Demarcus Ware didn't get in last year. Yeah. I'm not going to like. I don't have to get into everything that happened in that that room. But like when we found out that he was not in it, I was like stunned, heartbroken, stunned. Yeah, I mean, I was just like. I, I couldn't, like, you know, I couldn't believe it. Um, but yeah, like, I want to put John Abraham in that conversation, especially alongside Jared Allen, um, maybe even more so than than Demarcus, because there was a, like to me, and maybe that's because like I know Demarcus better and like I covered his career more directly. Like to me, there was a gap. I think a little bit between Allen and Ware. Like it wasn't that close. It mm-hmm. wasn't like an either or toss up for me. But I'd love to get Abraham in that discussion. So yep. yes, maybe he's too good. You look at Ware's career. He was first, second team All Pro, first team All Pro, first team All Pro, first team, second team, first team, second team in his first it's like seven seasons. Yeah, I mean he's like no doubt about her to me. And then he has obviously the yeah. late career. I was gonna say he had two great careers basically in yeah. one. So I mean, uh, that, yeah, I think he's in a slightly different class if you look at it, just like accolades, pure accolades that John Abraham was. But yeah. John Abraham is still that's like the sort of guy that I think is worth mentioning here. Mm-hmm. All right, Lindsay. Since you did not do this with us last year, we are going to give you the honor of kicking us off. Who is your first inductee for this year's class for the Hall of Very Good? Okay, so I'll go with my guy first that you guys think is too good to be on this list, Um, and that's Anquan Bolden. Um, He is a guy who has made the semifinalist list. He has been on the group of 25, um, but I think given what the receiver room looks like and what the logjam receiver is going to be like, I just think it would be really, really hard for him to like be a serious, to have like a real serious candidacy um, in terms of like getting really serious discussion about actually getting in. I think he kind of fits all of that when I think of what is a hall of very good, like a guy who was always one of the best players at his position, but never the best, a guy that I just freaking loved playing. I enjoyed covering who did kind of all of the things that you just really respected mm-hmm. as a player. I mean, he was one of the toughest dudes. Like he broke his seen. face and then yes. played the next yes. week. Yep. I mean, not a great testament to the concussion protocols at the time, <laughs> but like he is a freaking badass. Yeah. Um, but he was like, he was never the fastest guy in his mm-hmm. team. I mean, nobody would ever like, you know, pick him as like a guy you'd 
want to win a race. But, you know, and he also was never really like the number one receiver receiving option on his team, which, you know. When he was, it was always a team that didn't really throw the ball. You know, it was like those Niners teams weren't heavy passing teams. When he was in Baltimore, it was, that's not really the type of team. And it was always like, if he was the number one guy, it was kind of because somebody else wasn't stepping up to be that guy. You know what I mean? Like, because Michael Crabtree had had issues with Michael Crabtree in (laughs) in San Francisco or something, for example. And Ravens were trying to find a receiver for years, you know, (laughs) Steve Smith until Steve Smith came along. Yeah, I mean, he just like, I mean, he put together a pretty long career. He Right now, he's 14th on the career receiving yard, mm-hmm. career receiving yards list. Um, but his two best statistical seasons were his two of his first three, you know, his rookie year when he was uh, the, the NFL rookie of the year with the Cardinals in 2003. Um, he only had one season with double, double digit touchdowns, um, three Pro Bowls, no all pros. Um, but I don't Only know. three Pro Bowls is yeah, surprising. This is, a, this is a very good career, actually. I thought he had more Pro Bowls. To so be here's why it, it hurts me to just blindly put him in here. It's because I want Anquan Bolden to be more in consideration for the actual Hall of Fame. Yeah. I it's even if the accolades aren't quite there, and I think you're right, Lindsay, because there are gonna be so many guys with he has 13,800 receiving yards, essentially. There are going to be a lot of guys with numbers in that range yep. as a lot of these players come through from this era. There should be a rule of cool. If you were a certain <laughs> level of cool, even if you didn't have 10 Pro Bowls or four All Pros, you should get bumped up like two notches. And Anquan Bolden is one of the coolest players of, of my entire lifetime. Like yeah. one of my all-time favorite guys. So putting him in here is almost an admission that the Hall of Fame probably isn't going to happen for him. And I think I'm just hesitant to do that because it makes me sad. He's kind of like a, a football person's football player. Like kind, yes. of, kind of guy. Yeah. And which is a lot, of, I'm sure a lot of these people we nominate, but that's what it, he like. Cause even in like scouting football circles, Bolden's a type, like a player that people compare to. He like he's kind of all the time. He's a, he's one of those guys that people mention all the time. And that, that's a good thing. <laughs> that means you were known for doing certain things. And Bolden was being tough, tough as hell, being an awesome blocker, being so physical and just being Mr. Reliable. I mean, so, but he's always a guy that every year you'll see, oh, he reminds me of Bolden or he's like a smaller Bolden. Like, you know, so that means you did something right when you're playing. But now that looking at, looking at the accolades and what Lindsay's argument, yeah, I think he's actually a pretty, pretty good nomination for the whole. Very good. I'll say my one other thing that it just like when I talk about Anquan Bolden that I always actually there's there's two things but I think they're related here um, I started my career as a sports writer in South Florida working at the Palm Beach Post covering western Palm Beach County including these really small towns Pahokee and Belle Glade Anquan Bolden is like he's one of the two best players to ever come out of Pahokee and he was who was uh, better uh, um, I had a teammate from there fuck um, um, goddamn. I, I don't have to put you on the spot um, there. Just like if um, someone who's better than he just Anquan got into the Hall of Fame, Ricky, uh, Ricky Jackson. Oh, Ricky uh, Jackson. Okay, okay, yeah. okay, 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 okay. Who was awesome because he would like call the game, so I would get to like watch games in the rickety Pahokee press box with, with Ricky Jackson. It was very, it was really cool. But I was covering high school football there in like oh three oh four oh five, which was when Anquan Bolden was a rookie. His first couple of years when he was kind of exploding on the NFL scene, and my favorite thing was every single kid like almost every single kid that I would interview from Pahokee, he would say, my cousin is Anquan Bolden. Like they all just took so much pride in this guy. And you'd have to kind of say like, well, you know, before I write that, like you're Anquan Bolden's cousin, like how you kind of have to verify or whatever. And every once in a while you would get the guy who said like, oh yeah, our moms are sisters. And you say, oh, 
you that you really are. You really are. So I've just kind of had this like I've held him in just like a tremendous amount of steam because I yeah. know where he grew up. I've, you know, met his family. I've, you know, his his brother went back to end up coaching at Pahokee High School for a while. And um so I just have a tremendous kind of amount, a re- amount of respect for where he came from. Uh, he held the Florida all-purpose records re- or all-purpose yards record until it was broken by Tim Tebow. Uh, oh, wow. So it's like he's in like pretty rare company. Um, and then I will say he, we're talking about statistics and accolades and stuff. He gave up a couple of like stat accumulating years at the tail end of his career to retire to found the Players Coalition. Yeah. Uh, and it just, I, I just really respect it was courageous. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of hard work. Um, he, you know, he could have kept playing, but he realized that this was something that was much more important to him and decided to, to retire instead of kind of like splitting his, you know, his passions. He decided to kind of go full into, uh, the, the social justice activism at the end of his career. Great. We use this term, I think, too often. Anquan Bolden is a one of one player, mm-hmm. like in the history of the NFL. He'd ran a four, seven, two. In the forty at the combine, like two thirty two four four seven two. His three cone drill was in the third percentile. He had a thirty three inch vertical leap. His broad jump was in the tenth percentile. To be that sort of explosive, like explosive athlete, <laughs> and have thirteen thousand receiving yards and be a dominant player in the NFL for a decade is insane. Like it is so so hard to thread that needle. There was nobody like him. I loved him so so much. I remember his first. It wasn't his first game. He had like 200 yards. It was like I guess like the Lions. Yeah, or something. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, his I rookie year was that. amazing. Yeah, I mean, I in that, that old Cardinals helmet. Yeah. This is just evolving into like dudes talk about old sports players. It, yeah. That's exactly what the show is, and that's okay. All right, before we get too far down that road, Nate, what's your first one? My first one. Well, first one I want to nominate or not nominate, say one that I think is too good, but he's borderline. And like, but I think you, Robert, you were kind of like when we chatted before, you're like, oh, yeah, I like that one. But really, I think my own criteria, I can't do it. And that's Joey Porter. Joey Porter's uh, a good one. Yeah. And it's it's just, right on the line. He's all decade team. And for me, you have the semifinalist credentials, which I think is a good one. Mine is more like if I see all decade, that's really hard for me to go. Very good. That's elite. <laughs> You're the all-decade team. And I'll just talk about Joey Porter real quick. So he might be for Canton Court. So this is a preview for Canton Court. But two-time first-team <laughs> All-Pro, three-time second-team, four-time Pro Bowler, all-decade team, 98 sacks, 12 interceptions. He's to me, is like the epitome of that era's 3-4, him yeah. and, and Harrison. I mean, of course, with yep. the Steelers. But, you know, he also had a big year with the Dolphins when he went to – he signed with the Dolphins as well, Joey Porter. Um, but that is just to me in my head forever is what I picture a three, four outside linebacker. That is just what that player is. Uh, but just a big play machine. I'll get to my real one though. And that is he also Rick- finished his career in Arizona. Every single pass rusher had like one season with the Cardinals, Dwight uh, Freeney, Freeney, John Abraham, yeah. every single guy had like, you got to go to Arizona to finish out your career. JJ Watts there now. JJ. Yes. That's another one. Oh, it's really man. funny. Everyone's is- just retired in Arizona. That, that's what, that's what you're doing. Just playing a little golf. In the dry heat, finishing out your time. <laughs> dry heat. No, that's – oh, man. There's, I feel like there's another one, too. I, all right, I'll, I'll think of it over the show. All right, my real nomination for the Hall of Very Good is Ricky Waters. And when COVID first hit, and I had no idea if the 2020 season was going to happen, I watched a lot of old stuff on Fox telecasts and stuff. I was worried about you. Yeah, that was a – 
That was a tough time in my life. That was right before the show started. Yeah, so I was prepping for that. That's what I was doing in my life before when Robert's like, hey, you, you seem to like football. Want to do a podcast? Uh, so I'm watching. Uh, so didn't know COVID, like what would happen. So I'm watching all these old games. I'm watching the 49ers-Cowboys games, which were a lot of fun to watch. A lot of playoff battles, just big time games. And Ricky Waters just stood out. I remember him from his Seahawks days, how he ended his career. Mm-hmm. And that's how I my version of him. We were young for the Niners I was, run. Ex- I barely yeah. remember him with the Niners. Like my football memory starting about 96, 97. So I barely, I don't remember that. And to him watching him, watching him, his, if we're just talking stats, five-time pro bowler, but also just, he put up a lot of counting stats. He had three with thousand yard rushing seasons uh, or thousand yard rushing seasons for three different teams. Him and um, Willis McGahee are the only two to ever do that. Uh, but his running style was so fun. He was kind of the epitome of that 90s version of a uh, West Coast offense, running out of split backs. He was a really good receiver. Him and David Johnson actually kind of run the same. It's kind of funny to watch when you oh, watch. Oh, nice. That's, it's kind of cool. They're kind of, they're cut from the same cloth. Well, because he's 6'1", right? Yep, like Ricky Waters is fairly tall. So like that, when you watch David Johnson run, it's, it's and that, I was going to maybe recommend Matt Forte. I didn't end up doing it because I didn't want to be a super homer. But those guys who are cut like that, yep. there aren't that many of them. So they, they start to resemble one another. Yeah. And the, yeah, the long-legged. And it yep. just, yeah, it's a smooth kind of like, uh, weaving I, serpentine running style. That's really cool. And like Kamara kind of runs like that, but he's smaller. So it's kind of like cool. Like to, when you see these guys, but um, he's been a semifinalist, but that's it. And I think that was just in the last year, actually, I think. And Lizzie might know that a lot better, but he, yeah, really fun player. I think very good is exactly right for him. Um, I don't think he was that I- iconic running back. Running back is the used to be for years, the position in football. Um, but in the nineties, he was kind of the, always that very good player and I had a long career. So just a, a fun, fun player that I think is very good as a right tier for him. Average 50 catches a year over his first nine seasons Smooth in that hands. era, which is really, really impressive. Mm-hmm. He's one of the I more mean, fun I, players to watch rewatch it from a modern lens. He's one of, he was, def, he was on the all rewatch team. <laughs> I remember him in Philly because those oh. like the, when he was in Philadelphia, that's right. When. The light clicks on for me when I remember watching other teams that weren't the Bears. And that's where I was like nine, ten years old. So that's a really, really good one. Lindsay, do you remember Ricky Waters? I don't have like really strong, strong vivid memories of Ricky Waters. Um, Like he was kind of that a little bit before, like where I was watching a lot of um, like in the 90s. I was watching a lot of AFC football because I didn't have a direct TV package. So I watched a lot of the CBS. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of like really strong AFC West, uh, AFC West memories. Cause that was pretty much what was on in my house in the late end. Is that late funny way. how that, I know it's like, I mean, that's me and Robert for NFC central, NFC North. So <laughs> all my Listen, memories. I had to stop myself from throwing on three more NFC North guys onto this list. So <laughs> I, I totally understand how that goes. Speaking of, my first one, I am truly embarrassed that we did not include him last year because he is the epitome of what this exercise is supposed to be. Somebody who was memorable, distinct, had a play style unlike anybody else's, but was not celebrated with traditional accolades in the way he should have been. It should have been. And it's Antoine Winfield. Yeah. Antoine Winfield went to two Pro Bowls. Two. That's it. And... I have a lot of things I want to say, but I was looking back at, again, some of the PFF numbers from that early time when he was in Minnesota in the back half of his career. They had run stops. They just run stops for every single position. Among corners, here are Antoine Winfield's run stop rankings from 2006 to 2012, okay? Second, 
tied for third, but first in run stop percentage. First, tied for fourth, tied for fifth. Also had 29 stops on pass plays, which is best in the league. He had the number one coverage grade among all corners in PFF that year in 2010. Number one in run stop percentage in 2011. First in total run stops and run stop percentage in 2012. He is one of four players from the 2000s to have 600 tackles, 65 passes defense, 15 interceptions, and 10 forced fumbles. The other three are Rondé Barber, Ray Lewis, and Keith Bullock. Yeah. You don't have to, you don't have to really uh, he hype was up Antoine awesome. Whitfield to me. <laughs> he was awesome. I was looking back through highlights yesterday, and there was a couple plays in the clips where he would slide under a, yeah. a puller or a fullback and yeah. somehow still have enough explosiveness to spring into a tackle. Yeah. It's insane. Like it's an like edge, watching like an, an action does. movie. Yeah. yeah, it was it was wild and just so, so physical. And that's just, he was underrated. We should appreciate him more. I th- honestly think that if he comes along 10 years later, one, the sport of football is different. The slot corners, so much more of a high-profile position. Just the way we think about them as a starter and a real part of a lineup, I think, changes the way that people talk about him. And I also think that advanced stats and looking at advanced stats help him in a real way because we didn't know about it with corners. All you saw was interceptions. So back when he was in the league, the NFC corners every single year, D'Angelo Hall went to the Pro Bowl every single year because D'Angelo Hall got a decent amount of interceptions. D'Angelo Hall also gave up like eight touchdowns a year. So if in a world where we're looking deeper into the numbers, I just think he's one of those guys that goes to like four or five first or second team all pros if we if he plays in this era compared to the era that he played in like i truly believe that yeah i mean with the especially with more db nominations that you can do now with the pro bowl stuff. yeah the rosters yep. are shaped yep. differently yeah for the no, entire yep. time he played you could only he, pick two like an two outside corners basically he is yep. i mean it makes sense that you love him because you also love k1 williams and it's like antoine winfield is a supercharged better version of k1 and that's how he would be used nowadays he, he's he'd be perfect for what we talk about we talk about defensive slots like he'd be perfect in this day and age as a tackle run defending defensive slot i mean he, yeah. and it's and the, but he was only like five nine. Oh, he's, yeah <laughs> that's the craziest part yeah. about it he's, and he would say he would like, say he ran a four nine too he was like oh i did not run like a four four coming out coming out of college he goes that was juiced he's like <laughs> he was just a pure football player just an incredible player. I mean, just so, so fun to watch. You go back and watch him. I mean, unlike any other player at that position in the league and just the type of guy I absolutely want to talk to when we're doing or talk about when we're doing stuff like this. All right. I I think he's an interesting guy too, where just when we talk about position, because so Rondé Barber is a guy who's too good for this list, might not end up getting into the Hall of Fame, but he was your first Canton Court nominee last year, right? Nate, wasn't he? He He's your first one. Yeah, that's because he's right in that in between. And he's a, he's a guy who I've had like a lot of conversations about as I, you know, have these Hall of Fame conversations because there's a lot of people who are pushing really, really hard for him. But it's just hard to appreciate like playing most of your career in the slot when yeah. that wasn't really a high profile position. So, yeah. um, and my other thing about Winfield is I just, and I, I don't want to spoil what's coming on Nate's list too, but there's now this whole generation of NFL defensive backs who are, have, like these superstar sons playing in the NFL, yeah. a lot of them playing defensive back. One of you guys had Patrick Sertan. I did last year. Last, yeah. year. last year. Yeah. And so you had Sertan on your hollow very good. And then you didn't you pick Patrick Sertan on your or did Robert get him in our draft? 
I got him on our draft because Jalen Ramsey was still sitting um, there. <laughs> but obviously now Antoine Winfield Jr. Yeah. is a is a very, very good player in his yep. own right. We've got a lot, you know, Asante Samuel Jr. Stayed in Minnesota. Went I was to Minnesota gonna, is, is Asante Samuel too good for this? He feels like a good one to me. But he had he's like kind a, of right in that range, I he's think. He's right in the range. I'll I'll talk because I have another one, but come but yeah, those DBs at that time, like those kind of late nineties, early two thousand DBs, it seemed like everybody had like two or three big ears and then peaked back down or dripped back down. It was weird. Like looking back at all of them. Anton William Anton Asante Samuel had fifty one interceptions. He was really in his career. So I mean fifty one interceptions. You look at his passes defense every single year, it's crazy numbers. I mean, he just Ball hawk is an overrated term. That guy just took the ball away consistently. And for multiple teams, very few times you have a 27-year-old corner hit free agency yeah. and continue to be really good. And he was really good in Philly those couple of years. So yeah. something to consider for next year, possibly. All right. <laughs> Lindsay, what's your next one? All right. So I have my next guy when we're talking about DBs, um, he was a generation, I guess, behind. And we do not know yet if he will end up making the semifinalist, the 25th list, because he's in his first year of eligibility. Um, and that's Cam Chancellor, who I freaking love. I don't think he'll get into like serious Hall of Fame consideration for a number of reasons, but I think he's very, very much should be in, in this discussion. Four-time Pro Bowler in eight seasons with the Seahawks, second team All-Pro twice. Um, I think part of that is the position that he played, and he played alongside a uh, very, very good safety, the guy who uh, probably took a lot of his uh, the All-Pro nods that he would have gotten. Only his 12 career interceptions. He wasn't like a guy who racked up like takeaways, forced fumbles, sacks, really anything in like the statistical categories. But I don't think there's anybody who was more important to the Legion of Boom in that era of Seahawks football and really that era of the NFL and like the dominant teams of that generation than Cam Chancellor was. The way he felt. Yeah. It's just the, the presence that he had Set a tone. was just unlike anybody. And just the way he looked and the visor. I mean, talk about cool players. Yeah. He is right there in that conversation. One of my favorite stories I've ever written in my entire life was in 2014. I wrote a story talking to a bunch of guys that he just annihilated going all the way back to high school. Demarius Thomas was like an incredibly good sport about it. I called Demarius Thomas. He's like, yeah, I'll talk about the Super Bowl hit. And he just was very, very nice about it and gracious in a way he did not have to be. But I remember talking to a kid when uh, Camp played at Phoebus High School in uh, in Virginia. And he was an incredible player. He was a quarterback. Like He just had like 300-yard all-purpose games with like five or six touchdowns. But he was obviously just a monster on defense. And this kid I talked to was like, yeah, I, my leg, my shoulder still hurts. Like when I lift a box or whatever, 10 years later, he could still feel like this ache whenever he would have to lift something heavy because of the hit the camp chancellor put on him. And that's just... He was so memorable. That hit on Vernon Davis down the sideline. There were just so many of those. And that hit he put on Demarius Thomas at the start of the Super Bowl, that was one of those moments like this game is over. Yeah. Like this game is over. I mean, it was over from the first snap that went over Peyton Manning's head. It was really over. Yeah. That was the line of the exclamation point. And then Cam Chancellor put the dot. (laughs) Although I will say Demarius Thomas had like a like a Super Bowl record for number of catches after that hit. So, I mean, it's one of the things that when we talk about Demarius and his legacy is like that he took that hit and then was like the only good thing to talk about for the Broncos in that Super Bowl. Um, But he was not the same. When I talked to Demarius's mother back before the Super Bowl, Demarius was not the same. He was still dealing with like physical effects that 
he had told his family and people closest to him that stemmed from that Super Bowl and that hit from Cam Chancellor. But I, so I will say, like, yeah, Cam, like, kind of just like a legendary, intimidating guy, mm-hmm. but legal. I don't think you could find anybody who would say like, oh, he was not a headhunter. Nope. No, 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 he, no, no, just no. Was, he was an intimidator, not a, not a yeah. dirty player. Um, yeah, and, you know, I just think when I'm looking at this group too, I mean, it's, it's so hard because like, I think Richard Sherman will eventually be a hall of famer here. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Earl Thomas. It's, but it's like, that's not worth discussing. It's a very yeah, complicated I mean, thing. So Cam yeah. is like, you know, Earl Thomas was clearly the most like freakish athlete, yeah. just like the most, he was the in- town. incredibly <laughs> gifted physical specimen on that defense. Richard Sherman was kind of the stat guy, the face, the, the voice, yeah. everything of that group. Um, but Cam was like the heart of it, right? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, and it's going to be hard. Like, I don't think eventually we're going to look at you know, this Legion of Boom defense is going to be like, like the the Bucks defense where you had like multiple Hall of Famers. I think Sherman. I hope Bobby Wagner gets in. If I'm still a selector when Bobby Wagner becomes eligible in six or seven or eight years, <laughs> I will like go to the frick freaking mat for that guy. But you know, I don't know if it's going to be you know all of them getting in. And that's just kind of the nature of the way that they played. I think that they weren't, I mean, part of the the allure of that group is that like, they weren't this group of superstars, you know, they were fifth round draft picks or, yep. you know, th- that kind of came together that they, all the pieces fit really well. They had the right coach and Pete Carroll. Um, but I just, I love Cam Chancellor and, and he, he had to retire early. I mean, injuries, the way his playing style caught up to him. So he wasn't able to kind of play long enough to maybe you know, he played only eight seasons. I wish he could have played ten to twelve. Yeah, there would have been. I remember great, talking they're, to they're a great wrestling group. Sorry, they had the talker, oh, the yeah. ta- talent, and the intimidator, and then the fourth 100%, guy, hundred percent, the interchangeable 100%. fourth guy. <laughs> but sorry, go on. <laughs> oh, I remember. I just remember talking to Corey Winsley after that year, and he he was a rookie, and he got put in at, to start against the, the Seahawks in Week One because of injuries at center. And Bruce Irvin said that week, like, I'm praying for him. Oh and he was just terrified. He was so, so scared. And one of the things he told me is that he was just imagining Cam Chancellor in that visor. And he was just sitting there up in Seattle in the hotel, couldn't sleep the night before the game. That's what he was seeing. Oh like, that's all you need to know. It's not just us. It's guys in the league who are like, this guy is terrifying. Yep. Yep. And that's awesome. Like, there's so few guys who've ever come through the NFL that just have that sort of specter about them. And Cam Chancellor absolutely was one of those guys. I'm really glad you brought him up, Lindsay. I got a new – not a new respect, but a a confirmation of respect, I guess. My first year in Oakland, we played them in the fourth preseason game. And you know how fourth preseason games, especially now, are. We're not playing the starters. You know, it's the the backup fest. It's practice squad guys. It's their resume builder. And But sure enough, that Seahawks team, because they're so competitive, Russell Wilson's out there in the first quarter. The whole Legion of Boom's out there in the first quarter. And we did a whole thing where we – so we have our twos going against the Legion of Boom and <laughs> <laughs> in Oakland. And we did like a whole like formation thing, like change it. So it's like, okay, so now we got Thomas down and Cam Chancellor has to be in the post. Oh, perfect. We got him where we want him. And we ran like a vertical play and he just ran stride for stride with our receiver. Just like it was nothing. The ball goes up and he just blasts him with the shoulder as the ball comes down. And I was like, Jesus, this guy's on another <laughs> level. And that's supposed to be the the stiff, slow one. Yeah, quote yeah, unquote. Yeah. The guy you can like, take advantage of. Take advantage situation. of. Nah, he's run stride for stride with guys. It was, yeah, he's not, he was a total, total ridiculous talent. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. For their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash maze, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash maze now to grow your business, no matter which stage you're in. Shopify.com slash maze. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Nate, who's your next one? Next one is one that was on my short list for our short list last year, but I'm going to go with, pull the trigger this year, and that's uh, Sean Rogers. And I, I, I really, oh man, I this is an NFC North, like this is perfect right here. And I think he's just a guy, he played nose tackle, of course, and now nose tackles are kind of, you know, a, a dying breed, or but a, a true, true old school nose tackle, but he was a freak. Like he was literally unblockable at times, six four three fifty, and moved. His burst was ridiculous. People YouTube his highlights. It's it's for people listening right now. He played for the Lions and the Browns, so that's kind of especially the rough, rough, rough time for Lions and Browns. Um, but just an incredible, incredible athlete. Um, probably one of the best kick blocker, uh, field goal blockers of all time. Yeah, he has seventeen in his career. Uh, one of the best modern times, the best I can remember. I remember him doing it against the Vikings once. Um, accolades wise, he had three Pro Bowls, one second team All Pro. So he's kind of perfect for how I look at these guys. But um, I'm pretty, yeah. The Sean Rogers was a guy I was really, I had a lot of fun rewatching for this process because it's like, oh yeah, this guy was, this guy was really can move. And looking again through the modern lens, he'd be, I think, more appreciated for what he'd be asked to do. There is a group 
of guys in that era. So Chris Jenkins came into the league the same year Sean Rogers came into the league. So you have these just dancing 360 pound dudes who are just quick as hell and unbelievably talented. Like Chris Jenkins had a run early in his time in Carolina where he was one of the best players in the NFL. We absolutely could have suggested him for this in the same way. And then Vince Wilford came to the league like three years later. It was just a golden age for dudes like that who played at 360 and just yep. could control Pat the Williams. game. Yep. Oh my God. There's so many of those guys. I know. And that's what we and have like, a couple Ted of Ted Washington's right and the Pat Williams of the world. Yeah. The Roger, Rogers Jenkins. Rogers were more. I, they're in a different level athletically, athletically to me than yes. some of those real pluggers were. Yeah. Like the that's way that Chris call. Jenkins could move at 360 was absolutely wild. It's the burst. It's that. Yeah. We freak out about Jordan Davis right now. And it's like, that's kind of, I'm not like totally comparing them, but picture those highlights of Jordan Davis, but that's what Sean Rogers was doing as well. Like at that, at 360, uh, it's, it's a really crazy stuff what he was doing. God, Chris Jenkins and Julius Peppers on that same defense. I know. Carolina. They had some other dudes on that team too. It, a lot of, DJ William, DJ Williams is on that team back yeah. then. I mean, they just had they had really, really fun defensive players. Yeah. Even and Gam- also gamble at DB, you know, like just like kind of names you remember one of those kind of teams. And then Mike Rucker is the, was the other guy. He played on the right side because Peppers played on the left side. He was a, a ten sack guy. Yeah, I mean, they just they had a lot of players on that team that I really appreciated back then, and yeah. just a very, very fun group. Todd yeah. Sauerbrunn was their punter. <laughs> <laughs> back in he's not he's not making my hell he's not he's not gonna make it he's not gonna make it for me either all right <laughs> my next one here uh kind of similar i think to the cam chancellor one i think obviously just because these teams played against each other all the time and we'll remember that rivalry uh, martin's navarro bowman and his peak is honestly higher than a lot of the other guys that we're going to consider here he just didn't play long enough mm-hmm. injuries really derailed his career but what an unbelievable player yeah. And my favorite part about re-watching him and going back through, he was an amazing run stopper. Like one of the best run stopping yep. linebackers in the entire league back then. You know, they played that kind of base 3-4 in San Francisco where they were both uncovered and they just kind of roamed around him and Willis. And watching them as the centerpiece of a defense yep. in that early, those early Fangio days was amazing. But the thing that I didn't remember about Bowman, and you go back and look at the numbers and the tape, he was an unbelievable pass rusher. Mm-hmm. Like the spin move that he had and just the physicality when he would be one-on-one with running backs was disgusting. Yeah. He pretty much had 20 pressures a season every single year that he was a full-time player on like 100 pass rush snaps. He was one of the most effective per-down pass rushers in the league every year he was healthy, essentially. And you combine that with just how devastating he was against the run. And I mean, those Niners defenses were just so, so intimidating and yeah. tough. Like every single, just tough dudes, Patrick Willis, Justin Smith, all of those guys. And I mean, the defensive backs, like Dante Whitner was on those teams. Yep. Like There's a ton of tough, tough dudes. And he was right at the center of that, really good in coverage. And then I don't think even in the moment, I appreciated how incredible it was that he came back from that truly devastating the injury. Like we never knew if he was going to be the same comes back and leads the league in run stops in 2015, the year he came back. Especially First for a guy that pro. drives on speed. Like yes, that, that, yes. That's what's incredible. That speaks unbelievable to his smarts, athlete. Smart he was, yeah. He, just a, an unbelievable player. And again, if he has 
a few more healthy years, we're probably having a different sort of conversation. He was a four-time All-Pro. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was right there at the top of the league with Willis for a while, but I don't think he'll ever have a chance to get in just because he doesn't have the years. Yeah, I think the same way. I got to spend a half year with him in Oakland. He, That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's awesome. He's such a cool dude. Like, super smart. Just loves talking ball. Just uh, he He was a Penn State guy. So he found out when we were around the same time, I found out I was a Badger. So we talked Big Ten ball a lot. But yeah, just a great dude, total pro. But uh, I totally agree with you. One of the smarter players I've ever been around as far as just how he viewed the game. And like as far as like, he's one of those guys he read. read it's when, I love talking to defensive players, especially DBs, linebackers, where they just talk about how they read the game all at once. Yeah. And it's like, how the hell did you see all that? And he's like, well, you know, you see the left guard light on his stance. So he's like, it's like, really? You're staring at the quarterback the whole time. You saw the left guard there too. But he was one of those guys where it's like, okay, got it. I'm in this assignment. Boom. Okay, I'm going to read everything out. But yeah, truly, truly a really fun, great player. But just, yeah, short career. Didn't even play until he's 30, which is crazy. Yeah, that that group, that era of Niners football and specifically a 49ers defense is going to be really interesting on like how history remembers them. They yeah. didn't win a Super Bowl, but they were really dominant for for a short stretch. You know, it was the, the Vic Fangio kind of I mean, he'd been a co- he had been a good coach for a long time, yeah. but kind of what Fangio did with that group. But between Bowman having that devastating injury and Patrick Willis retiring uh, by his own choice early. I don't know if, I mean, I don't think there'll be any Hall of Famers out of that group. Patrick Willis oh, has I the think best case. I think that's a crime. I think Patrick Willis should walk into the Hall of Fame. I too. So it's so hard. I mean, I, 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 there might be some other. If Calvin Johnson is a Hall of Famer, up- Patrick Wilson should be a, Patrick Willis should be a Hall of Famer. This it's, is my stance on this. So, and he's, so he's obviously way too good for this list. Oh yeah. He's, he's been, uh, he's been a, not just a semifinalist. He's been in the, the top 15, that group, um, he made it in there last year, didn't get into the final group of 10, I guess, that gets discussed. But at some point, he might get into that next group where there's there's further discussion. But it's just a really – it's going to be an interesting kind of group and how we remember them. You know, Justin Smith, was he on your list last year? Too good. Too yeah, good? We, okay. we, we decided too good. Too good. Yeah. I, See, I was say, would I would be- put – I think I would have him kind of in this, yeah. this realm – as well God, so he's, he's he's the tweener for me that's you know even like, like you know even like ahmad brooks like yeah dante whitner i mean i think they're all i mean they're all really 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 good players i mean i would put bowman i guess i would probably put bowman and justin smith kind of in the same kind of in that same category and if and if bowman had been able to play another three or four years or mm-hmm. chosen to we might have him in that like he's way too good for this list because i think he's right on that edge for me right now if you look at their careers Keekley was first or second team all pro every single year he was in the league. He also never got hurt for an extended period of time. Obviously, the concussions were played a role in ending his career, but he played at least 10 games. He made it was the first second team all pro playing 10 games in 2016. Luke Keekley was. <laughs> Luke was pretty good. But Willis, in his first six years, was first or second team all pro all six of those years. And they both went to seven Pro Bowls. They're both on the all decade team. Yeah. I think if one of those guys gets in, the other guy should get in. When you're thinking about linebackers of the era, it's three guys. It's Keekly, it's Willis, and it's Bobby Wagner. Those are the three guys. And I think all three of those guys should get in based on the careers that they had, even though yeah. Keekly and Willis did not it's play just quite inside well. linebacker. It's just what it's gonna be it's it's becoming one of those positions that I think in the modern NFL, it's gonna just be kind of hard. I I mean, I think those three guys eventually will get in. I'm mm-hmm. 
I think the Keekley and Bobby Wagner cases might be a little stronger than than Willis's because of the longevity. We'll see where it ends up landing. But like Zach Thomas still isn't in. Um, he was another one where I was kind of surprised that he didn't get in last year. I think it was a Sam Mills ended up getting in in his last year. Um, but it's it's a position that's going to be really hard to get in um, moving forward. Maybe yeah. beyond this year. I mean, this this group that we've talked about. I'll be really interested to see kind of where that position goes long term. Yeah. All right, Lindsay, who's your next one? All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the quarterback. Um, I think the first quarterback we've talked about today, right? Um I've got Steve McNair in our in our hall of very good. Um, because if we're thinking about guys who were that we just loved watching, and I think if he maybe had played in a different era, you know, his his career ended in 2007, right as football changed. Um, so he never played in like this passing era. And, you know, I think we kind of forget about like just what a freak athlete he was. Yes. Huge arm, could play in the pocket, could scramble, was tough as shit. Like I would have loved to see him play when there were maybe some rules that protected quarterbacks a little bit more, <laughs> uh, protections that he was not afforded. Um, he also didn't play with like elite of elite like skill position right. guys there. Him and Derek he, Mason. Dude, I mean, that he, was it. He was Derek the offense Ke- Kevin back Dyson. in the day. I mean, he had Eddie George, obviously, yeah. but um, you <laughs> for know, three and, and a half good, yards a touch. And some, you know, some good linemen and stuff that he played with. But like, he was it. Right? He was it. And he was he was so fun to watch. I mean, he didn't put up ridiculous stats and like you know the stats that he from two thousand what nineteen ninety five to two thousand seven. Like they just don't look good compared to the numbers that we're going to see for quarterbacks moving forward. Um, you know, and he was like, he was a co-MVP with Peyton Manning. So he's a guy that, you know, because he was kind of in the peak of his career when, when Peyton was young and Brady was coming on. And, the same you know, division as Peyton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he didn't quite maybe get that recognition, yeah. but um, I loved playing him or play, loved watching him, respected the hell out of him. And I think he's like the exact type of guy that, that should go in our hall of very good. It's a really good one. It's a really, really good one. Somebody that you just, I, with this, I just love being able to close your eyes and you can picture the guy playing. Oh, like yeah. That their style and the way that they play it is just so distinct that you can just close your eyes and see it. And he is absolutely one of those guys. Was really unlike anybody else in that era. Because, totally I mean, Vic obviously moved around in a way that other quarterbacks didn't in the way that McNair did. But the way McNair moved and just like how he was built. Yeah. I mean, he was like a, he was so like a fire hydrant. I mean, yeah. he was just so, so stout. Yeah. And the way he moved around, he was really, really, really fun to watch. Yeah. In the modern day, he he's a get a bucket guy. Like that yeah, is that's 100%. Big there. A hundred percent. Watch watch his college highlights. It's one of the most it's, fun it's things. Sick. It's the most fun highlight films you I mean, because he was playing against like much lesser competition. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? Still <laughs> got nominated for a Heisman at Alcorn State. Or, or, so or I think he was the finalist. I think he was fourth or something like that. But yeah, just a just a ridiculous player. That but I I love Watching McNair as a runner, as a thrower, I had to play in the Jeff Fisher offense. So you're not, <laughs> you're never going to have held, the, held him the back heavy, a little bit. Yeah, the heavy, heavy stats. But he, you, you ever watch those games? And like you're saying, where you feel a player when you could picture a player, you watch those Titans teams. There's always kick ass defenses, and then Steve McNair making plays. That was yeah. like, that was their formula <laughs> for years and years. He loved love the player. One yard, right, I'm gonna, one yard short of winning a Super Bowl. Oh, that too. Yeah. All time. All right. I'm going to cut you in line, Nate, because I think my next guy is a logical transition from the Steve McNair conversation. I'm putting Dante Culpepper in there. I'm pandering to you, but it's so here's the reason. I think that there are some guys that 
we put on there because the totality of their career mm-hmm. and the breadth of their achievements are very good as you look at the body of work. They're just not going to get to that Hall of Fame type level. And there are other guys that deserve to be in here because they're cool as shit. And watching them play football was a blast. And that's what Dante Culpepper was. Yeah. Dante Culpepper was 6'4", 260 pounds with one of the greatest arms in NFL history. Like Point bank, period, had one of the best arms ever. And a couple different ways that manifested. The trajectory on some of the deep balls and the way that it would explode out of his hand. That video posted. <laughs> well, so that was that's a different type of throw. There, there are some that were like, it's a moonshot that he's yeah. throwing Moss down the field. But the best ones, there was one against the Saints that I did not post. Back corner of the end zone? The back corner of the end zone <laughs> and then like the front pile on a couple times yeah. where he's just loading up from the 50 and the ball never leaves the screen. The trajectory of the ball, it just does not make sense. You should not be able to throw a 58, 60-yard pass on that sort of line. Like the guys who could do that in NFL history, you could probably count them on one hand. Mm-hmm. It's like him, Brett Favre, maybe Michael Vick, Justin Herbert, Jeff George. Jeff like It's George, not yeah. a very long list. And it was so beautiful that he got to play with Randy Moss. Yeah. Because you have these two guys who are just forces of nature. At their positions, arguably in a different way than almost anybody else who's ever played the sport. They were forces of nature at their positions and them getting to play together. You know, it's the results were mixed, as you very well know, Nate. But that was 2000 and that 2000 and 2004 seasons are like two of the most exciting offensive seasons in NFL history. And Dante Culpepper was a big reason for that. So I I just feel like he is worth celebrating in this moment for that reason. I'm, I'm. I'm one of my favorite players of all time, so not going to get much pushback from me. But uh, Dante, Pep, you know, it's that he coming in, I mean, he's just a bundle of tools. It's like one of the greatest bundles of tools of all time. Uh, coming from UCF was that he like set the accuracy record in college, like for for FBS level. I think he broke like Steve Young's record or something of that sort. Um, and then so he comes in. So not only is he can throw those beautiful moonshots, which I thought was normal. I thought every quarterback that you <laughs> – so the quarterbacks I grew up around were Jeff George, Randall Cunningham, Brad Johnson, Dante Culpepper, Gus Farratt, and Sean Hill. And so like I had a mix, but mostly I, I was I was around Culpepper and Gus Farratt, who just – Farratt can throw like 80 yards as well. But Farratt was throwing these – they're throwing moon balls, and then it's just like I saw Sean Hill throw, and I was like, okay, I'm more like that. Uh, and But watching – I just thought that was so normal. And then on top of it, he's 265 running over guys like he would run over early he could move and he could run yeah he was a legit he was probably like a four six guy like i mean like that's probably but at 260 yeah and his first game it was against the bears his first start and he ran for three touchdowns he didn't even throw for one he ran for three because he had no idea what he was doing like (laughs) so he was just so big and could just get away with it but he grew into being more of a quarterback and then that was the peak was that oh four year which was just randy went down for like six or seven weeks um, with the hamstring in that same Saints game that you mentioned. And Nate Burleson was like the leading receiver. That was Nate's big year. Um, but it was watching him is, you know, some of my greatest highlights. And that's, I've talked about this before, the sound of the Metrodome when you see Pep do that little crow hop. When yeah. You, you saw him that shoulder tilt up and you just hear everybody at the Metrodome stand up at the same time. It's like that's burned into my brain. Uh, but yeah, not going to get much pushback for me. I, I love, love this nomination. <laughs> I love watching okay. highlights. The way you can hear when you watch those highlights, you can hear the ball come out of his hand. It's like you can hear the whip yep. when he throws that ball. It's it just unlike it's a tight really, throwing motion. So that many, was, was yes. so crazy with him. It was so tight. Yes. 
and you would pin it on guys and then throw something 75 yards the next play. He makes it look casual. I mean, yeah. some of those throws look casual for the yeah. line he's putting those 60-yard balls on. So figure that we might as well just keep the quarterbacks tied Love in there it. together. Yeah. It was just tough the way that like his end came kind of suddenly. So, yeah, like, it really the did. drop off. Like, I mean, he fell off a cliff. I mean, I was living in South Florida. Like, I was like a sidebar writer for the Dolphin, you know, at the Palm Beach Post when the Dolphins signed him. Mm-hmm. That was as kind of the like, we don't trust Drew Brees' shoulder, so yeah. we're going to sign Dante Culpepper, and it just all time sliding doors moment, like in the entire NFL. Yep. Yeah, so that's what I think, Dante Culpepper. That's what I think about not not as much with the, those Viking years, but um, oh, the sad. Years. Unfortunately, I should go. I'll go back and watch like the good, just, the good times. There's just like a highlight, a video of Moss with Moss, Randy Moss's like 40 yard touchdowns or more, and it's like 17 minutes long on YouTube. Yeah, and it's then, the, the chunk of the Culpepper ones are really fun. All right, Nate. You, I <sighs> let, let you back in here. Who's your next one? I, I'm torn between which one I would go with. I'm going to go with Chris McAllister here. And mm. I loved Chris McAllister back in the day. <laughs> Those Ravens defenses ruled. Chris McAllister was on my short list last yeah. year. I almost put him in. I And I, I didn't, I'm not picking this other one. I might pin it for next year. And that's Peter Bolaware was my other yep. Raven. It was the same argument. That's that defense when you have a lot of iconic guys. And this is, what, Lindsay, what you're talking about a little bit with Cam Chancellor. When you have so many good players on a really iconic unit some guys get squeezed out and which kind of stinks but chris McAllister is i mean one all pro one second team all pro uh three-time pro bowler like i said before iconic defense how i remember McAllister um from when i was a kid was a lot of returns like he was mm-hmm. a playmaker uh i had the long kick return or or it wasn't a kick return it was the field goal return touchdown against the broncos actually um and it was like the end of the half like a monday night game and he takes it back like 100 100 something yards and that's how I remember him just being a, on those defenses that like the blitz so much, those Ravens defenses, he was just able to stay sticky. Um, I think he would have gotten more accolades because right away he was a good player for those Ravens teams right after he got drafted. He got his hands on a lot of balls. If you look back at the stats, his past nine picks his first two seasons. And it's if that happened now, we'd be going nuts. <laughs> um, and I think it was because this was the same time that a lot of the good corners were in the AFC. You already brought one up. Um, uh, uh, was oh no, it wasn't. Yeah, it was not Sertan. Oh no, but we had Sertan. We had Charles Woodson at this time. Sam Madison, Ty Law, Champ Bailey. These guys were all at the same time playing corner in the AFC. So I think he just kind of on a good defense where it's like, oh no, they have other good players. That's not just him. He kind of got squeezed out with some accolades, but still had some. But just a really, really fun player. Um, and really like a modern corner that can play man-to-man over and over and over on a blitz-happy team, or now would be quarters. He'd be locked down on the outside every game, on every snap. And I guess technically yeah. he got a second Super Bowl ring because he was uh, he played in two games with the with the Saints in 2000. Oh, did he get that one? Ah, that's nice. Just like he didn't play much, but he yeah. was there. Yeah. No, he a lot of these corners, uh, looking back, when you look at these stats, you re- get remembered that once they hit 30 – Odds are they're probably going to fall off a cliff. <laughs> it's it like happens you, fast at that position. It happens fast. It happens very fast. The Some of the corners from that era when I was looking at Winfield and Pro Bowls, some guys I really enjoyed watching back then. Al Harris. Al Harris. Gene Mathis. Yes. Like, there were just guys back then. It was like, those Jags defenses with Henderson and Rasheen Mathis and Marcus Stroud. Stroud, like, yep. I, I enjoyed those teams. I thought those teams were... I remember really thinking, like deeply thinking, that they were going to beat the Patriots in the oh, 2007 playoffs. I was like, same. oh, they're, I think they're going to win that game. I think they're going to beat them. And then Brady 
when he completed 20 his first 22 passes. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I was I, I watched that, I think, like a bowling alley when I was in college or something like that. And we watched the whole game. And I remember just – that was just brutal. Just not, It was just I knife it. was in London. Him. You were in London. I was in London. I remember watching the game at like 4 a.m. in London because that was the semester I was in London. Yeah. I had to convince the bartender at our local pub to keep the place open to watch that in the That's Super Bowl awesome. later. That's awesome. Yeah. One of my favorite – teams my my dad was a part of was that jaguars team that they, that team black uniforms yeah. like they just there was something about those teams that i really a enjoyed a lot of fun all right Lindsay, who's your next one all right i'm gonna go my homer pick to Love wrap it. us up here my homer pick is rod smith who uh played played wide receiver for the broncos 12 yeah. seasons franchise receiving leader three pro bowls um he was really overshadowed on like those Broncos teams of the the mid to late nineties and early two thousands by Shannon Sharp and Terrell Davis, who are both hall of famers, but I freaking loved Rod Smith. Um, and he was not a product of the Elway years. I mean, he, he came to Denver in 1995, um, as an undrafted player and he was good until the end of his career playing with Brian Greasy and Jake Plummer. Um, and I think there were a couple other guys mixed in the, in the middle. <laughs> Bubby um, Brister. Bubby Brister for, yeah, well, Bubby went when LA was out um, for, for a stretch during one of those seasons. But, um, you know, he was really kind of just like the heart of the Broncos skill position guys. You know, Shannon Sharp was a much bigger personality. Terrell Smith's peak was significantly higher. Obviously, he won an MVP in 1998. Um, but for me, as like a kid growing up in in Colorado in the 90s, you know, the 80s and 90s, and then really those Super Bowl years when I was in high school, like Rod Smith is like, he was it. Like yeah. when I started covering the NFL, like the first NFL game I covered was I believe it was actually a Dante. Cul- it might have actually been a Dante Culpepper uh, Miami Dolphins uh, game, the Broncos, and like seeing Rod Smith in the locker room. It was like 2005 or something, and I was like, "That was oh, shit!" <laughs> like that's Rod Smith. Um, and that's so funny. I just like I just loved his career. He was so reliable. He tremendous story, undrafted player um, to go on and lead the franchise in receiving. He still lives here. He's around all the time. He's like mentored every receiver who's come through town since you know since he retired. The Demarius Thomas and him were very very close now through like Court and Set- Court and Sutland and Jerry Judy. You know, you regularly will see Rod Smith kind of out at Broncos practice talking those guys through every every little thing so he's kind of he's my homer he's my homer love pick it. there but i just i love him his his 80 yard super bowl uh his his 80 yard touchdown in super bowl against the falcons like he didn't really have stats in the super bowl win against the packers like he played a really big role in that game but he didn't like have a lot of catches and then they opened that game the next super bowl with just this like bomb feed up. yeah Rod i remember Smith. that like yeah um and then you know that game wasn't close i mean in part because of that touchdown to to start the game um but i just it's like that's one of those memories of like teenage Lindsay. like that touchdown is like burned yeah. into my memory yeah uh, he was a pro bowler at 35 years old that's ridiculous. he came into the league at 25 yeah his rookie year he was 25 years old that's why and it's i just remember him he's not a, a remarkable looking person he's like six feet tall he's not yeah. overly big and he was undrafted and he just was so damn good. Just like consistently productive all of the time. Yep. Yep. He was so smooth. I just, uh, yeah, that's, a, I remember watching him live a couple of times. I thought you were going to bring up, you were saying I covered a Dante Culpepper thing and I realized you're talking about the Dolphins, but the, the yeah. loss over the head game where he, he threw, he caught the ball at halftime, threw it over his head. 
uh, to Mo Williams. But in that game, I remember Rod Smith playing it. We getting to see him live. And I remember just being like, oh, because you again, I got spoiled with Dante Culpepper's arm. And I also got spoiled with Randy Moss being 6'4". And, run, and so I pictured every good receiver to be 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, and then you see Rod Smith, you're like, oh, okay. Like, that's Rod Smith. But he was so good. <laughs> he was so, so good. Yeah. Although, no, that All might right, have Nate. not. I might, I might be wrong now. That might have not have been a Dante Culpepper game. It oh. might have been a, uh, like, Jay Fiedler. Or- oh. <laughs> it was a dark time. Or it was a dark time, time in Miami. Yeah. I think they got some orange unis during that time. All right, Nate, who's your last one? All right, I'm going with the receiver as well, and I'm going with Joe Horn. And the Joe Horn, if you asked me years and years ago if I'd been like, Joe Horn, like, but he's perfect for this. He's all very good because he played on a, some wacky Saints teams with um, Aaron Brooks at quarterback. And if you rewatch those games, Aaron Brooks probably wasn't the easiest quarterback to play with. He had a big arm and everything, but <laughs> those balls were spraying. And I, I got to rewatch them. And, and as we're doing this process, a lot bigger than I remember. I remember Joe Horn as a speed guy and catching bombs. And like, if you rewatch him, that's what a lot of his highlights are. And he's so fast and smooth, but really just, he's six one two fifteen. I didn't realize how just thick, he was and really good in the red zone and all that. He was a four-time pro bowler in, in years when there was very good receivers in the NFL. When we talk about glut of receivers that are going to probably come up in the hall of fame co- uh, conversation. Um, and I'm not saying I haven't mentioned once about his touchdown celebrations, which makes him <laughs> iconic, iconic, legendary, legendary cell phone, every single one. I, I uh, telling people go watch like the eight minute YouTube highlights. Someone has of them. It's got like 30,000 views. Every catch, Joe Horn was doing something afterwards, like some dance, <laughs> some motion, some movement, some reference to something. It's, it's a before very, very his time. Fun. Imagine very if he got to play now. Oh, when he didn't have to worry about it, like getting fined or anything. Oh, man. But he he was out of his mind. Uh, but no, it's and that was son, this another person that has their son in the league. Another player. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to see his son play for Carolina this year. But uh yeah, that's uh, Joe Horn was a. I think this is, he's a perfect conversation for this because just like he was very good always, but you never thought of him as that that elite elite guy, but you knew he was very good. <laughs> so I think this is a great great place for him to be. Uh, another receiver, Saints receiver that I considered for this was Marcus Colston. Oh, Mar- nice. You know, Marcus Colston never made the Pro Bowl. Never, not one won. time in his career did Marcus Colston huh. make the Pro Bowl. He's got not like eleven thousand like receiving yards. No. He never made the Pro Bowl, and he has an insane amount of total yards yeah. for somebody who's never made the Pro Bowl. Going back and watching those like 06 Saints teams, yeah. you forget just how they would push the ball down the field. It's so much I fun. Mean, in 06, Breeze averaged 21 yards per attempt on deep passes it, back then. I mean, that, it was just so different than what we came to expect from there later on. So the Saints had some underrated receivers yeah. back in the day, man. I told you about the hand wipe story, right? Watching film of Drew Brees because this is how much how vertical he was or how they used to be under Sean Payton was uh, we were watching clips uh, over the summer at Wisconsin because Wisconsin ran the ball a lot and we threw heavy play action. So we're watching Drew Brees just throwing all these over routes, all these post routes. He gives a play action fake. He puts the ball in his left hand. He As he's turning, you know, because you have to do a half turn on those uh, play action fakes, he wipes his hand on his pants and then puts the ball back in his hand and throws the post. And I've never seen anything before that or after that, that did it. And Drew Brees is wiping his hand mid play and throwing like 60 yard touchdowns <laughs> down the field, just on another level. The other thing, the Brees' pocket movement, like how good of an athlete he was early in his career. You forget, you forget how well he moved around. He was a really, really good athlete. We yeah. think of him as this kind of statue ass pocket passer. And that's not what he was when he was young. No. All right. 
Lindsay, I'm, I'm going to do more pandering here. I pandered to Nate with Dante Culpepper. I'm going to do the same with you here. I'm going with Elvis Doomerville. My guy, my guy. Elvis Doomerville. So Elvis Doomerville's last year at Louisville, or his last year in college, was my last year playing high school football. Okay. And I remember watching him back at Louisville. And I loved watching him and Dwight Freeney because I'm 5'11". And watching guys built like that dominate the game from that position, I just always really appreciated. Obviously, Freeney had that crazy spin move. and yep. you know, Freeney is one of my favorite players of all time. Just super, super smart. Was an incredible player. Dumerville didn't have that signature move. He's one of just the best pure pass rushers, I think, in NFL history. Yep. So if you look at the numbers, he's listed at 6'1 at the Combine. That's- I don't think he was 6'1". No way. I, I don't think Elvis Dumerville is 6'1". He's 5'11 on pro football reference. That yeah. seems more correct. So if you do six foot or shorter, let's be gracious with six foot or shorter. He has the most sacks in NFL history from anyone that is six feet or shorter. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who else. And it's not really that close. Yeah. I was going to say. So uh, Aaron Donald is right there. So Aaron okay. Donald is like, and him are in that same conversation. I think if it's, if you do six one, So no, really had production from the edge, unlike any other player yeah. ever. Elvis Dumerville had at six foot or a little bit shorter. He, when you watch him play, it's just, he does everything right. Like it's no one move. His little, just like simple rip that he would do. He had obviously had great leverage because he was 5'11". Just the feel he would always have for, I know exactly how to use your weight against you. And just a little rip that he would be able to do. His long arm kind of like speed to power move is always very good because he always felt exactly when to use it. His The way he would just dash inside exactly at the right moment all the time. He just knew exactly how to pull every single lever as a pass rusher. And when you're 5'11", you have to be able to yeah. do that. You can't win with just overwhelming size or speed. And watching him go about his business was amazing. Somebody else, he has 100 sacks. And if you look at like the win rates every single year, He's always right there in like the top 10, 11th, 7th, 6th, had 50 pressures a year. Every single year, he was a full-time player in the NFL. Every single year, just mindlessly consistent and productive and did it in a way that literally no one else in NFL history has ever done. From 06 to 15, his first 10 years in the league, the only players in the NFL who had more sacks were DeMarcus Ware and Jared Allen. That's it. Pretty good. Yeah. And to do that with that sort of frame, I just I loved watching him play. I was just like, that, had, that guy's built like me. One of one. <laughs> like, like, what? Except one of for one. that he had freakishly long arms. Yeah. I know there have been many um, wingspan discussions on this podcast, <laughs> um, but freakishly long arms, like the wingspan of a guy who was significantly taller. Like than 33 five, or something, than right? 5'11". Yeah. yeah. Really, really long arms. When you talk about like leverage points and yeah. arm placement and hand placement, it's those things really helped him in his technique. Um, obviously he was, he was on the Broncos when I started covering them and, you know, he really gave me a lot of like football education. He was one of those guys who I just, as like a beat writer, just really, really appreciated and respected because you could sit there and talk, go, go talk to him about anything about, about football, about, about pass rush moves. Um, that 2009 season when he had 17 sacks, that was the weird Broncos season where they started six and oh, and then finished, I believe two and eight. Mm -hmm. It was Um, the McDaniels year, right? Josh McDaniels first year there. Um, and just such high hopes for him. And then when he tore his pack during training camp the next year, just really, really devastating. Like I vividly remember watching it happen and running off of the field because we were not allowed to tweet from on the practice field, like running off to like be able to like report 
on this happening. Um, you know, and that was kind of like, you know, he played a couple more years in Denver, but that was really his peak. The fact that he had another 17 sack yeah. season is wild when yeah. he was with and the when whole he was facts the thing. Yeah. Oh, and there was yeah. the facts I mean, mishap where he was could have oh, stayed in Baltimore right. or could have stayed in Denver. Oh could, yeah. I mean, that wasn't, that was a nightmare where, yeah, I mean, that was, that was more the Broncos fault than it was. It was, I forgot about that. It wasn't all, it wasn't really Elvis's fault. It was the Broncos yeah. and agent's fault. And uh, it was bonkers that in whatever that was t- with 2012 or something. They were still using it. was 2012 because then he had to get cut. For those of you who are too young to remember this, I don't know if they're like 22 well, you know year old people listening is? to this. So literally Elvis Dumerville, his agent did not fax the paperwork into the Broncos to restructure his contract. And they missed the deadline by like five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and the Broncos had to due. release him he had because the bonus, bonus was due. So he was released and then signed with the Ravens. And, eventually and he was like, it was like, oh, he's going to come back. And like, yeah. it was, you know, maybe he'll resign. But there were like such bad feelings at that point. And his agent and I like this split up with the agent. The agent was kind of left in some Justifiably disgrace. firing yeah, an agent after that, by the way. Be doing the same it was, thing. It was, I was covering an NCAA didn't tournament like, at that like time. And just T.O. Like, have one of those too? Like there's been a couple of those. Yeah, um, it was it was a huge yeah it was a huge mess. Um, yeah. and I love yeah, that. I just yeah I just respected him so much. I loved covering him. I loved watching him. And I'll say the one other little note about him that just like when you talk about what a guy he was and like should be part of his resume is what he did for developing Von Miller at the beginning yeah. beginning of Von Miller's career. Um, Von gives a ton of credit to Elvis at the start of his career, and then Von Miller later, or I mean to Demarcus Ware, Demarcus Ware. later. Um, Von was really lost those kind of the, the years in between. Like he really needed a mentor and Elvis was huge, huge for him. So uh, Vaughn's resume is part of uh, Elvis's resume here for the Hall of Very Good. 20 and a half sacks his last year at Louisville. 20 yeah. and a half. And like, like, didn't he have like a ton of forced fumbles? I, that's the one sack. I hear like something crazy with forced fumbles. The, uh, the, one of my favorite, that sat line, but yeah, just throw it in. But that 17 sacks with the Ravens, he did it on two starts. Like, which, yeah. I think, which I think is hilarious. If you want to know what Elvis Dumerville's role was with the Ravens, <laughs> hey, it's their, hey, it's passing down. Get on the field. Go, go wreak havoc. But yeah, he, Dumerville's, and when we talk about one of one players, he's one of one. Like, he is one of my, like, one of those players that I'll always remember because you never see a guy like that. You never see sub six foot guys, and you especially don't see dominant sub six foot, sub six foot guys like him. I, that's why I just love watching him, just because yeah. it, the with the style he had to play with, and again, just understanding the leverage and the little rip moves, and just every single fine, nuanced detail playing the position was awesome. That the 2005 Louisville team was really interesting. That was the Brian Brome team. Yep. And the, remember Michael Bush, I, Michael Bush, that number big 19. running back that they have. Yeah. Yeah. He, I really that that team was really fun. Harry Douglas was on that team. Yep. All right. They were fun. They were always on Thursday night. All those old Big East games were always on Thursday night. So I used to watch them all the time. Breno Giacomini was on that team of a long time Seahawks. Breno Giacomini. uh, 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 Hi. Yes. Here. I'm going to grab that pile of dogs. He would have been really quick. Yeah. Oh, he was. He was. Amobio Koi. Yeah. Literally the youngest guy to be drafted. So, yeah, he was pretty young. All right, we're now we're devolving into remember yeah. old football players, which that was inevitably going to happen. All right, Lindsay had to go. She had to do a TV hit, do more impressive things and more important things than She's us awesome. just going back and living in mem- down memory lane here. But this is really fun. I enjoy doing this every year. It's a great way to spend some time in June remembering some players that were deeply important to us back in the day. So I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. We will be back tomorrow. We're getting a time machine, bringing it back to the present day. We're going to do 
the lessons we've learned from the best offenses of 2021 tomorrow. We did defenses last week. If you have not listened to that, I'd encourage you to go check it out. I, I really enjoyed the conversation that we had with Deontay. Deontay was going to be on tomorrow's show. He is unfortunately under the weather, so he will not be able to join us, but he'll be back very, very soon. So please come back and check that out. In the meantime, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I sincerely appreciate that. Please subscribe to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash football show is where you can read all of our wonderful writers. Even in the offseason, we have tons of great stuff coming to you all the time. For now, we'll be back tomorrow. Talk to you guys soon. This was The Athletic Football Show.